So we were looking at the paper the other day, and we see that Canada's Cyber Intelligence Agency has warned in a new threat assessment that foreign actors are, quote, very likely attempting to develop cyber capabilities to disrupt Canadian critical infrastructure. Let's say, oh, how about the electricity supply? Oh, and they named names, too. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are our greatest strategic threats. So what does all this mean uh, on the day-to-day going about your business for a typical Canadian citizen? Perhaps we should be a little more concerned than many of us appear not to be. Well, we decided we'd dive into the story with the very capable assistance of David Harris. Mr. Harris is a lawyer. He is a former CSIS officer and currently is the director for the International Intelligence Program at Insignis Strategic Research in Ottawa. David Harris, good morning and welcome back. It's great to have you with us again. Well, nice to talk to you again, Sterling. An awful lot going on, including on the cyber front, as you say. Well, let's talk about that. I'd like you to help us just understand the network from which this uh, information came to the headlines of the nation's newspapers the other day, David. For example, we have the uh, Canadian uh, security establishment in within which is the Center for Cybersecurity. Uh, can you I- identify or help to unravel this very mysterious but terribly important aspect of our national security? Well, yes, the uh, national cybersecurity strategy is, I guess, at the heart of this. And as you note, there is a cyber center within the larger communication security establishment, which itself comes under the purview of the uh, Minister of National Defense. Okay. Now, the center which uh, issued this report uh, has um, been providing uh, advice to the public and uh, to others about the state of our general communication security and bearing in mind, too, that the um, communication security establishment at large has in various forms for, uh, I guess, the best part of uh, a century, at least three quarters of a century, uh, dealt with signals intelligence and uh, signal security and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. focused on the government of Canada, but increasingly, of course, taking an interest in the vulnerabilities of all of us in Canada. So this report comes out at a particularly significant time, given the threats we know we've all been facing, both at the national level through foreign government threats and manipulation, but uh, also on a more more, uh, individual basis where we see cybercrime burgeoning. And uh, this pre-holiday season, uh, you can imagine, of course, how timely all of that uh, is. The fact of the particular focus, and as you say, the uh, flashpoint in some of the reporting involved the naming of these various regimes. You mentioned China, North Mm -hmm. Korea, Iran, and so on. That is really reflective of a great shift we've been seeing in recent years. Not so long ago, it was like pulling teeth, trying to get to the federal government to name a specific country. And in part, this reflected the natural and understandable tensions within government, within foreign policy, where people were wary of naming a specific country because they were wary of the tensions that could develop as a result of that. Yeah, And, uh, and also, I think there was also 
a, a concern that in naming one or a few countries, it may cause us to go to sleep uh, with respect to the possibilities coming from any number of other countries. So, yes, this is a big deal. And you had the big four mentioned. Yeah, they've been super active on so many fronts. All of the subject areas we've just uh, mentioned, uh, including, of course, the overtly defense-related issues, the economics that can see us as individuals denuded of our assets, assets and, uh, and so on, even our identities. And then, of course, possibilities of manipula- political manipulation in the service of the foreign policy and other interests of the ruling regimes we're talking about. So it's a kind of frightening and exciting time, I suppose, to be involved in these kinds of areas. Well, there's so many fronts, David. That's the part that I think is so baffling to so many of us because, you know, uh, it's it, it will uh, very comfortably be said by many in the security establishment, for example, with respect to intellectual property, that countries like China have been stealing us blind for 30 years. So that's not mm-hmm. a secret. So nonetheless, we ha- we've not said that up front. Yes. and loudly on the page one uh, up until quite recently. Is it, uh, I'm looking for reasons that, that you, you've identified, for example, uh, uh, almost a, a, an innate Canadian politeness, a fear of reprisal uh, and, and unnecessarily ratcheting up tensions among some of our biggest customers. It's interesting that China buys so much from us and yet is happy to steal so much else from us <laughs> on top of all of that. But, you know, the, but, you know it, it, at one point or another, another, and I think it's quite recent, for your comment, Mr. Harris, and it's lovely to have you back, by the way, David, uh, there's plus 80%, plus 80% of the population of Canada has expressed quite a large dissatisfaction with the approach taken by the government of Canada with regards to China. And a lot of people point to the fact that, well, that's a kind of a liberal party problem because going back to the days when Pierre Trudeau opened the door and went to China and uh, various delegations subsequent to that, particularly during the Chrétien years, saw a lot of very well and powerful liberal players develop very lucrative arrangements uh, with China that uh, are seen to be continually profitable. So why would they want to rock that boat? And, and thus you see a position taken by the government, which happens to be the Liberal Party these days, that's kind of wimpy on a good day. So 80% of the population says, really, can we please have a backbone at the top? And suddenly we're starting to see some indications that Canada is is developing that backbone, uh, I, I think reluctantly. But what do you think? Do you see Do you see any stealing of ourselves against what is obviously enemy activity? Yeah, it's a very mixed kind of bag uh, when one assesses all this, because the power just to take China, which clearly is a significant influence in terms of its constant growth, its uh, military muscularity, which is advancing on a variety of fronts Mm -hmm. as we sleep, and uh, that kind of thing. It's internal manipulation, too, of a good deal of our politics. There have been a number of reports that have emerged suggesting that uh, there have been influence operations involving elected officials in Canada uh, on a variety of levels of government, too, uh, certainly federally. And indeed, there are 
the, some of the so-called friends of China mm-hmm. um, in the Senate, uh, whom we've seen in uh, relatively prominent positions and who had occupied very significant uh, positions in various, uh, I'll loosely term generically, business councils and the like. Yeah. Uh, these are people who stand to uh, uh, achieve riches beyond the dreams of avarice, given what uh, the Chinese regime is willing to pay, mm-hmm. and often this in the teeth of pleas from uh, many Chinese expatriates here in Canada, some of whom tried to get away from, of course, the dictatorial influence of the uh, regime. And uh, yet, uh, you know, these people turn around and they see some of their ostensible leaders uh, playing games on that level. Uh, China's foreign intelligence operations in Canada have been extremely aggressive and uh, intimidating in some regards, especially with respect to those uh, interests and influences who want to speak a bit of, shall we say, in the very tired expression, truth to power. Yeah. And, um, you know, so you're seeing this kind of thing. You're seeing at the municipal level, uh, uh, sister cities established mm-hmm. and this kind of thing without apparent appreciation for the fact that such arrangements are used by the Chinese government to manipulate people, often if they can get uh, local officials from Canada into the U.S., the possibilities of blackmail exist, uh, sexual and other. And getting back to the whole cyber issue, uh, the penetrating of uh, computer-related devices that may be brought by some of our officials to China, to Russia, and other such regimes. We uh, have also the... um, the complicating factor of uh, the most gigantic per capita immigration imaginable, which means then that you may have a pool of some individuals who may be perfectly well-meaning and determined to be loyal to Canada, who nonetheless may have uh, relatives or business interests remaining in a country under a totalitarian influence, and so being subject, despite, again, their every preferences, to the most devastating of uh, pressure and influence. Indeed. Uh, extortion and blackmail. There's that, Manchu- yeah. that Manchurian candidate uh, kind of possibility exists there. David Harris is on the line. Mr. Harris has been with us uh, many times over the years. He is uh, currently the Director of International Programs, International Intelligence, with Insignia Strategic Research. Uh, David has also been uh, a member of CSIS, and he is a lawyer by uh, by training. So, David, we're talking about some of the, uh, first of all, the description by our own security service of the four major players that they see as our greatest strategic threats, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And in the press conference announcing these uh, new realities to us all, they talk about things. You were uh, talking about examples of, of nefarious activities. They talk about Russia as recently as this summer. That's like three months ago. Uh, uh, trying to steal intellectual property and secrets from teams working on COVID-19 vaccines. So this is very current stuff, David. Oh, it is indeed. It's ongoing, and as the old expression has it, even as we speak. Now, we know that even with the end of the Cold War, 
the uh, Russian military intelligence, to just take one aspect of their broader intelligence superstructure, has been very active in Canada. I mean, it continues. Many said its activity, the activity of the GRU military intelligence organization, actually increased after the Cold War ended. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with on the more traditional level. But add to that the incredible, incredible magnitude of uh, what we know to be Russian uh, cyber operations, whether it comes to direct theft, involvement in or uh, condoning of operations from Russian territory aimed at individual Canadians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, whole, the whole question of uh, disinformation, to use the Russian expression of your uh, disinformation, trying to push that, trying to divide societies and polities, perhaps trying to favor a, a preferred candidate from the uh, Russian foreign uh, affairs perspective. Mm-hmm. You've got all of these things going on. And here are we, especially as a necessarily uh, divided kind of society in the sense of a free society where you have different people with different tendencies, beliefs, ideas, and preferences politically. And so we become vulnerable to uh, those who would, like the Russians or China or others, try to leverage those basic differences and tendencies into further division and into really pathological outcomes. Mm-hmm. So uh, pitting one group against another and so on. Uh, having, having said that, there is an interesting aspect to the uh, Cyber Center's report that really requires, I think, a lot of our attention. And there they were talking about, um, and I'm looking at a, a quotation here, the Cyber Center looked at uh, Twitter data, wow. where, of course, we've seen lots of evidence, mm-hmm. right, of manipulations. And it said that this revealed that Russian and Iranian online trolls used fraudulent Twitter accounts to highlight divisions among Canadians by amplifying inflammatory arguments surrounding divisive political issues such as terrorism, climate change, pipeline construction, and policies on immigration and refugees. Now, these obviously are areas that can be fraught with all kinds of serious disagreement. And it is important to be aware of those who try to split us. But I think Canadians may want to go to the cyber center and say, Okay, but what is, in the cyber center, in the government of Canada's perspective, what are the reasonable limits of discussion here? Because I may or may not want to be protected from certain kinds of views, and it may be up to me personally to see to it that I don't listen to those views. Sure. As opposed to having the government or any government begin to intervene to strangle certain opinion tendencies. As a lawyer uh, and somebody concerned about civil liberties and human rights, Mm -hmm. I am very concerned that we don't find coming in the back door our uh, at least uh, ostensibly well-meaning political leadership of whatever stripe uh, to turn off debate and discussion, to render radioactive discussion about uh, certain subjects. Again, whether 
It's uh, going to be, uh, I don't know, climate change, uh, immigration, refugees. Pipelines, pick one. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, all, all of that. Yeah. yeah. So, David, the, uh, the, the uh, notion that there is a big brother tendency within government, period, again, of any political strike, uh, is, is important to be aware of. And, and, and you're right. The fine balance is between the, uh, a free society having within itself the capability to discuss absolutely anything and everything that should be discussed uh, and that discussion being manipulated by external negative forces for their own purposes. I, I want to just take this in, in one other direction very quickly because this is an area you have a lot of experience with as an ex guy. Uh, when you talk about conflicts going forward, there's not going to be uh, the kind of uh, armies and tanks and all of that kind of stuff that we see even in limited regional conflicts. The next time there's a a major conflict, I suspect it's going to be, it's going to take place it's by something as simple as no bombings, David. All somebody's going to do is turn the other guy's power off. You want to see America convulse? Turn off the electricity. Give them six hours. Yes, there was a famous expression that emerged, I guess, from the late 1800s in France. A, an anarchist, a well-known anarchist at the time, said, uh, I can, with one lever, turn off all the lights in Paris. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, the reliance on electricity just makes anything of the late 1800s in France look like nothing. Uh, yes, we've got those kinds of issues. We have uh, matters involving dams. If uh, by flicking a switch or pushing a few buttons or keys, you can uh, open floodgates yeah. and so on. Uh, you can just see what kind of uh, human and mass ca- uh, casualty disasters can result from that. Uh, so uh, these things are well known, and it is generally appreciated that you have got adversary countries that are spending an awful lot of time working their way in and through and around various of our uh, infrastructure arrangements, whether, again, it's electricity or other things, including, of course, some of the controls of uh, nuclear uh, Mm -hmm. setups and uh, industries. So, you know, you look at all of that, and is it possible that in anything vaguely resembling a war, uh, you might uh, awaken to find that without anyone's having fired a shot, you've just lost. And you face economic catastrophe um, and civilizational disaster. Because, again, without electricity, where are your hospitals? Um, You know, uh, yes, maybe you've got generators for a few days or even weeks. uh, But how do you uh, how do you move things around and control things? And what kind of sabotage can occur, too, in supply chain? Also, uh, you know, you combine that with some of the more standard, more subversive types of activity of having agents here or people who may have loyalties to foreign governments on and on it goes yeah and uh, and that by the way that capacity that some enemy countries may have has not limited their interest in conventional and nuclear warfare which of course 
they may go to on a regional basis if things got extreme enough, um, while uh, holding us back in our homelands with the undermining of our basic systems. This has not been an exercise, by the way, in in making Vancouver people get up and go completely paranoid as they begin an otherwise perfectly normal Sunday morning. However, uh, all of that said, very wise words from you, Mr. H, uh, just basically advising us, I suspect that the takeaway from this certainly for myself, after reading all of this stuff about the threats from China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, etc., and then diving into it, is that the, the, the security aspect of, uh, of protecting Canadians is something we so take for granted, David, almost to be blasé about it, and perhaps we necessarily need not to be quite so blasé going forward. And I'll leave it at that point for your comment. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we've seen lesson after lesson, but there seems to be a human proclivity, of course, to Mm. avoid uh, some of the more difficult anxiety-inducing issues. And that's always been known to psychology. We talk about denial and rationalization. There we are. And uh, that unfortunately means it's all more difficult for us to come to terms with those unappetizing realities that require our direct attention. Well, you see, this is why guys like you are so valuable to people like me with a microphone and the ability to spread the word. Uh, A credible source like yourself, David, consistent, calm, and rational all the way through is critical to our understanding of the need going forward. It's just a treat to have you back on the program, sir. We must do this again, probably not until after the new year comes around, David. So at the at the risk of being really tacky this far out have a terrific holiday season we'll talk early in 2021 thank you it's always good to bring happiness to you and on a sunday morning thanks david (laughs) take good care david harris (laughs) the director of the international intelligence program at insignis strategic research in ottawa it's a pleasure to welcome back our next guest who began working in the Vancouver public school system back in 2001. And when she started there, she saw that it was too often children struggle to see the point of school until after their formal education is over and they've gained more life experience. So she began to pay close attention to what actually lights kids up and helps them engage joyfully in their own learning. These were the nuggets that saw the formation of something called Called the Conversation Learning Foundation. The founder of the Conversation Foundation is Jenna Sharma, and she's back with us again for another temperature check of BC people during COVID-19. Missy Jenna, good morning. Welcome back. Oh, good morning, Sterling. You can't see, but I've got a huge smile on my face. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Well, you're welcome. You've doing a, you're doing a lot of very good work. Let me just uh, take a, a look at, uh, just run this one by you, Jenna, because this just came out yesterday. Uh, this okay. is uh, from UBC. Uh, COVID-19 isolation and quarantine measures can cause an increase in mental health risk, say these uh, researchers at UBC. While the health measures are critical to stopping the mm-hmm. spread of the virus, the researchers found that people's mental health has generally worsened 
during the pandemic. Now, they studied 3,000 adults in their particular research to come to these conclusions, Jenna. But, you know, uh, your focus, as always, is on children. So if, mm-hmm. if it is harmful to the mental health of 3,000 adults, all test subjects to one degree or another saying, yes, it's not the same, and I feel slightly less a human because of it. How does that trickle down to our kids? Oh, the key word right there, less human as a result of it. Uh, conversation, is the spirit of it is to embrace our humanity. And there's no doubt that there has been significant impact on humans of all ages and the mental health. Now, we released the family kit to help parents support their children in helping them to decompress mm-hmm. and find ways to engage, find some laughter, uh, do some activities that get their mind off of all those looming questions around COVID. Let's, can, I, can I just interrupt, Jenna, to uh, let mm-hmm. our listeners know that the family care kit that is uh, the one that you've created, funded mm-hmm. by the Canadian Red Cross and the government of Canada, is available for a free download right through mm-hmm. to the end of the year, right through to December 31st. And all they have to do is go to theconversation.org and take it from there, right? Absolutely, Sterling. You got that right on. This is funded through the Canadian Red Cross and the government of Canada. We see that there is a strong need to support families that have children. And when I say families, when we say families, that's any range of um, adults, grandparents, caregivers, uh, people that are supporting children. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about the thrust of the kit, because I know in addition to the family kit, you've also prepared one for educators that has turned into Mm -hmm. just a hugely popular thing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's zoom in on the family stuff, because there are a lot of family members listening to us right Mm -hmm. now, Jenna, and many of us with children in our lives. And so how might this help me were I to go to the conversation? and download it for nothing. Yes. Uh, so go over to conversation.org, click on the Four Families page, mm-hmm. and you will be able to download it. Now, we engaged with parents uh, through focus groups and surveys to find out what are they really struggling with and how can we support them. And for a lot of parents, there's um, guilt, frustration, overwhelm, and anxiety. And for them to know that other people are feeling this way as well brings a sense of relief. Well, I would, I would think now a lot, of, uh, a lot has changed since you and I first started talking about this back in March when, when the lockdown took place and we were trying to deal with the impact of that on British Columbia families. Now, since then, we've had virtual school and we've had real school and a combination, a hybrid of both, as is the case in the lives of many BC students. Uh, talk to us a little bit about those parents, however, who are in many cases still struggling with trying to teach something they don't feel exactly cut out for in the first place. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yesterday's live session, in addition to the family care kit, we have live sessions to answer questions from parents who are struggling, and there was a lot of focus around, how do I help my kids with school? And, Mm -hmm. like, how do I help them with homework? And the thing that I would really stress for parents is give yourself permission to not know. Mm -hmm. Give yourself permission to tell your child, 
I just don't know the answer to this, and let's see what we can do to figure this out together. And, you know, that's not a bad approach either, uh, because, uh, A, there's nothing wrong with a little humility, even though you fancy yourself your child's hero and role model and all of that. I mean, even even the, the, the smartest of us have moments when we go, you know, I just don't know. But you're, the wise thing that you suggest is, why don't we together find the answer? So you're both learning, and it becomes a very positive thing. Truly, Sterling, uh, one of the toughest things that can be there for kids is to know how to ask for help and for them themselves to embrace when they don't know how to do something. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of courage. So if parents can demonstrate that, then you're giving your child permission to ask for help versus struggling by themselves. Okay. And uh, talking, uh, what what uh, do parents tell you? Because you have these interactive sessions with parents uh, that, mm-hmm. that have been, uh, have downloaded the uh, the kit and uh, mm-hmm. are, are actively trying to uh, employ it in their family dynamic. So mm-hmm. what are parents telling you? You know, one, one other big question is, how do I help my child be okay with what's going on in the world right mm, now? Sure. That's a huge question, and I'm sure so many parents are struggling with that in their own ways. And um, my recommendation is just bring it down to a more immediate level, Uh, using an example of like your child falls down, scrapes their knee. How do you help your child be okay with that? You say, okay, you scraped your knee. We're going to put a Band-Aid on there. It's going to take a couple of days to heal. Helping your child figure out the steps in how to talk about an injury, like whether it's a personal injury or like the scope of what's going on outside, it can be so daunting for parents. So ask a child, how are you? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about what's going on? And then listen to what they say. Yeah. And, you know, and there are already discussions because Dr. Bonnie wants us to have these discussions. Hopefully mm-hmm. they don't f- come to fruition. But there's already uh, we're being encouraged to contemplate, for example, a Christmas that uh, is not going to be pretty, very typical at all. You know, no, maybe no mm-hmm. going to grandma's house for turkey dinner this year and those sorts of things. And in some families, not all, but in some families, those sorts mm-hmm. of family traditions really are the glue that yeah. typically on an annual basis cements the family connections. That if that's not possible, uh, some al- alternative is going to have to be found, isn't it? Yeah, much like schools have to go virtual a lot of these family visits will probably go virtual as well, and um, that's going to have an impact on extended family members, grandparents, you know, grandparents and grandchildren. That's such a special bond. You know it. So, mm-hmm, definitely. It's going to be very different. I've already started seeing pictures with Santa that look completely different than they've ever looked before. Have you seen any? No, I haven't yet, but I, but <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw one online that suggests what there are a lot more of them are going to look like, yeah. Yeah. Not very traditional. No, it's not going to be very traditional. And um, through the Family Care Kit, there are activities in there to support that connection, that engagement, that bring that calm and sense of creativity home. Mm -hmm. Jenna, let me take a quick break here. Conversation is the website, friends. It's spelled calm as in C-A-L-M. Conversation. 
org, And that's where you'll find the Family Care Kit uh, at the home of the Conversation Learning Foundation. Joined by Jenna Sharmer, the founder of the Conversation Learning Foundation. Conversation.org is the website. And Jenna, I'm on that right now. And during the break, I went to the other option that one can click on from the home page. These are the kits that you've prepared. One for parents. We talked about that. The other for educators. It was the back-to-school care kit that you prepared over the summer and again got some funding boost from the Red Cross and the Emergency Community Support Fund of the Government of Canada and were able to put this back-to-school care kit out there for educators free and it's still available free until the end of this month. How's it going? How has the response been? Last time we talked, it was phenomenal. Yes, Sterling, it's been fantastic to be able to support educators at this critical time with topics and lessons and activities that are super relevant to what is going on inside of classrooms, be it in person or virtual or a hybrid. So, uh, and, and we're talking about specific techniques and strategies around um, dealing with the realities of, of COVID um, and uh, yeah. sort of carrying on through a pandemic, I guess is the basic theme, right? Oh my goodness, yes. Carrying on through a pandemic, a pandemic that we don't know when is going to end. Now, just to give you an essence, uh, last week we released topics related to being human in a complex world. So helping educators support the students on discussing some key topics that affect them in their daily lives, helping them learn how to manage conflict. Um, One of the things that I talked about when I was introducing you at the beginning of, of this half hour was mm-hmm. when, back to your early days with the Vancouver uh, Public School System back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And from your website, it says what you saw was that too often children struggle to see the point of school until, in many cases, their formal education is over and they've gained more life experience. I have one of those people in my life, a really brilliant bright, bright young man who was yeah. ignored, who was underserved, let's put it that way, by the BC mm-hmm. education system. It didn't make any sense to him until he was finished school and into his mm-hmm. his career. And, and that is regrettable only because school should be a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And I really feel sorry for your human who um, had to figure things out later. And that is the puzzle of school. And your introduction and what you see on the website is, I was really interested in what caused kids' eyes to light up. Right. And when did they shut down? And what could we be doing differently? And it's those gaps in between subjects, like them discovering how to communicate, Mm -hmm. how to handle their emotions, how to, you know, where do their ideas and inspiration come from? So conversation is the result of years and years and years of observation of children. And um, it's ironic, Sterling, that it took the pandemic for conversation to find its legs. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it, it is it is unfortunate that it took this long, but I suppose mm-hmm. the, the upside of the flip of that coin, Jenna, is the fact that it's taking place at all. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, because of the pandemic, Everyone is um, far more aware of, like, how are kids dealing with all of this? How are things 
affecting students? What can we be doing? And the truth is, Sterling, that on a daily basis, kids all have different problems and different things that will never come to surface. But through conversation, it's like a validation of being human and, oh, I struggle with that. Oh, I didn't know how to answer that question. Just bringing it right down to humanity and engagement and connection. And I, th- there's, I think that's the magic word of the whole conversation that, that this morning. I think connection is the word. And, and whether it's uh, at the family dinner table trying to just navigate this crazy pandemic maze or even more uh, necessary, I would think, in, in a non-familiar situation, even though school is pretty familiar to children, it's not the family. It's not the dinner table. It's, it's an alien environment to the extent yeah. that it's not home. So then it's different. So connection would be even even more important and critical there. Absolutely. Connection. And I'd throw in generous doses of humor. <laughs> Bring in the humor. Have some laughs together. That's what's really going to support the resiliency, the ability to bounce back from the curveballs that keep coming with COVID. Uh, connection is absolutely key. And uh, does the uh, educator's kit that uh, you can still uh, download at theconversation.org include perhaps a few key tips on uh, honing your connectivity skills? Yes, uh, we have a series of different ways for educators to check in with the students, even before you start your lesson. There are wonderful creative picture check-in boards that allow students to identify how they're doing And these picture boards range from, like, planets in the solar system to food you might eat to weather, mountains, moons. Like, there's a ton of creativity that has gone into the development of this care kit. Mm -hmm. And the response from teachers has truly been fantastic. And has the response allowed you to modify the content anymore? Oh, they're talking about maybe we should emphasize this a little bit more and tweak it a little bit as it goes forward. Yes, and... In addition to the care kit, we offer weekly live sessions where educators can drop in and tell us uh-huh. how they're doing, if they have questions. And we've also, because of the generous funding, been able to put on professional day workshops for educators. And those have gone really well as well. Interesting stuff. Well, Jenna, you're certainly doing everything you possibly can to, to see us, uh, to steer us through this maze uh, and, is, and, is, and keep us to keep us on a, as even a keel as is possible. <laughs> Always lovely of you to drop by the program and, and uh, fill us in on the latest and remind our listeners that there is help as close as theconversation.org. Thanks for this. Oh. Thank you, Sterling. Love that. Love being on your show. (laughs) Missy Jenna Sharma (laughs) from The Conversation, C-A-L-M, theconversation.org. Brent Paulington is back with us. Always a pleasure to welcome Brent back to the program. He is with the Vancouver Office of Express Employment Professionals, and we're here to talk about a few uh, realities in the employment industry, including something called upskilling. Brent, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. And before we get to upskilling, Brett, let's uh, let's get caught up on uh, on where the job market is since you and I last had a chat uh, several weeks ago. Uh, I noticed, for example, Brent, I'm seeing ads on television on local stations for Amazon now hiring, now hiring, uh, signing bonuses available in certain locations, and blah blah blah. Is that uh, is the job market such that uh, they're they're lacking in workers to the point where they need television? television commercials just to get people to go work for them? Yeah, I think so. And I think, uh, you know, the way things have been shifting lately with um, consumers 
spending a lot more time doing their shopping uh, online and through platforms like Amazon as opposed to supporting the local small businesses in their community. Amazon is definitely seeing uh, the benefits of that and, and uh, their distribution facilities and centers are, are, are needing people in a, in a big way. Interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, my, my, my only surprise by all of this, Brent, is is the sheer volume of it all. And I know they've opened this massive new facility out in Tawasa, and there's another one in U.S. Minster near the Braid Sky Train Station. The old post office on Georgia Street downtown is being reconverted into a, a massive Amazon complex. They're growing at just outrageous rates. But I suppose the thing that surprised me, Brent, was the fact that there aren't lineups outside the hiring offices every day based on the fact that we know so many of, uh, of us are uh, lacking work these days. Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting conundrum for sure. I mean, we're, we're the same way. I mean, we're seeing actually a, a huge increase in the last few um, weeks and months in terms of the number of, of job, job orders and requisitions that have come to our clients uh, and yeah, there, there, there isn't a line forming, uh, you know, at the unemployment office, uh, unless it's for people, um, you know, I guess trying to look to, to get on different programs to, to be supported that are saying there isn't work available. Like it seems like that side of the, the spectrum is busy, but I mean, there's definitely still people that are looking for work. Uh, but I know that a lot of these companies just have expectations of, of here's what we're able to pay. Right. Uh, and maybe that's where the problem is, is with Amazon, uh, maybe they're not paying as competitive a rate as they may need to. Uh, but there's uh, obviously a challenge of offsetting your operating expenses. So um, you can only pay so much for someone that's going to, you know, fill a box and, and put tape on it. Yeah, I, I suppose I hadn't even dived into any of the numbers involved. It's just the impact of watching the ad it sort of pops up unexpectedly when you when you when you least expect it. But Brent, I, I suppose the bigger question is, uh, um, gosh, I don't even know how to phrase it properly. Uh, when people, uh, how, let's tr- let's try this approach: holiday work. Uh, Andrew, our producer, has a couple of friends who lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Their businesses collapsed during the lockdown. They're still uh, without work. They're going just bloody crazy sitting around doing nothing. Yes, they've gone on to some program. They're they're not broke, but they're going bonkers. So they're looking for anything, including holiday work. It's December, no, November 22nd. You got a good 30 days work with a lot of overtime between now and Christmas, Brent. What's that situation like this year? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like a lot of the businesses that would typically be there to support these places like restaurants and retail have been some of the companies that have been the, you know, most largely impacted by COVID restrictions. And so you've got restaurants. I was at one the other night where they had, I think, two servers and one chef on yeah. and they, you know, slice their menu in half and are only doing, uh, I think, pizzas. And, you know, they're just trying to innovate and find ways to, to stay afloat. And so they don't have the ability to just open their door to these seasonal employees, the students that have returned home is, you know, as, as their, uh, you know, school semesters have ended. And, and I think, uh, you know, the, the positions that are available or businesses that are looking for that, you know, that one hire that, that maybe one or two people that'll be able to make a significant impact to their business. And if they see that somebody's got a, uh, you know, short-term window, uh, or that they're not truly looking for an opportunity that they would end up sticking with the company for a long time, then again, companies have to train and onboard and develop. And that kind of leads into some of the upskilling uh, that, we're, that you know, we're going to talk about. But there's a huge upfront investment that companies make when they bring on a new employee. And it, 
it, it disincentivizes the employer to hire somebody if they know they're not going to get that return. Yeah, exactly. Because why bother? Because, you know, you got to go all yeah. through all the trouble and slow the operation down until this person gets up to speed, the whole ball of wax. And if they, after they get up to speed, they hit the back door and say, see ya. What was the point of that all about? Uh, Canada Post, just off the top of my head, Brent, from previous years, uh, typically uh, has hired seasonal uh, Christmas type workers to deal with the volume of parcels and all that sort of thing. Is that happening again this year? A good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't uh, seen a post specifically come up for them. But I, again, I know a lot of companies uh, are, uh, you know, being cautious of their bubbles. You know, we've got one client of ours that we work with that has two separate shifts uh, and, and they keep their shifts totally isolated. They're, you know, I think doing uh, four tens for each shift with no overlap and some will do graveyard and, and they won't hire anybody that doesn't fit within the time uh, requirements that they have to fit within those shifts. And, and just in case they get an outbreak and they need to shut one of their shifts down, they can still keep their company open. So I think like there's a lot of even fear from a company perspective to look at, you know, bringing new people in and it's, it's created uh, increased vetting and screening and, and, and it's just, it's changed the landscape for the, uh, for the companies and for the the, um, the job seeker. Well, let's let's talk about being that job seeker for a little bit here, Brent. Because uh, if you are that person and you are applying for a job, and all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, this employer has a kind of a different structure. Uh, there are different shifts. There they keep each other. They keep each other distanced and uh, one unit isolated from another. And I can't I can't uh, just go back and forth as I want. Uh, all of this. so, what uh, are the new requirements or the new? What's the new level? Level of awareness, I guess that's the word, that uh, a job seeker needs to show up at an interview with in terms of flexibility and adaptability to demands and scheduling. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, for the longest time, it was a, a candidate's market where the candidate could kind of pick and choose what they wanted to do. Yep. And if, if somebody quit a job today, they could have a job tomorrow. And I don't think that's really changed per se, but what has changed is that the employer is now in a bit of a stronger position. And with all the recent COVID restrictions, they are kind of saying like, you know, here's our expectations and guidelines, and they may not be open with them. Uh, They may kind of just have a set of requirements and I may sit down and ask you 10 different questions. And if your questions don't line up with what we want to see, then you're just not a fit. You may not even find out why. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think, you know, the, the, the businesses are, one, really being strategic with what they feel they need in their next hire. And then two, really digging into like their core values, their requirements, their expectations, what their needs are. Um, and again, might passively uh, not be as open with what they're expecting because they don't want to say, we're looking for somebody who fits this, 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 and this. Is that you? And you say yes because it's what you want sure. and then they find out that actually no you were just saying yes because you knew that was the answer they wanted to hear yeah so you you've mentioned that uh since we last talked and it's been at least a month or so that business picked up for you a little bit so tell us the kind of work that uh, the kind of uh, occupations or the kind of employers that are hiring these days successfully brent yeah yeah well we um we, for the contractors that are working for us, we run payroll on a weekly basis. So we see on a weekly basis how we're trending. Uh, November's been the busiest month of the year for us. October was the, was the busiest year before August and August before that. So it's been really great um, for us to come back because we were hit really hard in March when things first happened. I remember. Uh, we've seen... 
Yeah, we've seen uh, a, a nice uh, comeback with um, still a lot of the industrial companies, construction, manufacturing, production, but we've seen a lot of work coming back in the office space, which is great. Lots of reception. We place lots of virtual assistants. Uh, we're seeing some clinics and medical offices looking for intake coordinators and different things as they continue to see more and more influx uh, of work coming in. Uh, a couple highlight positions. There's uh, like a premier moving and storage company we work with in North Vancouver that always struggles to find people because North Van seems to be a difficult spot for companies to hire in. Hmm. Uh, so they're always looking for, for drivers and movers. Uh, we've got another uh, premier company in the North Shore that is like a, a high-end power washing company that's looking for, for power washing technicians. And then uh, another job I'll highlight for you is uh, uh, kind of a Vancouver slash Richmond, Surrey client of ours uh, that is a demolition company. And the gentleman is looking for uh, like demolition laborers, but also looking for an individual who would be willing to kind of take on a management type position and ultimately uh, potentially take on ownership or, or, or part ownership of the business. And that's been one of the most challenging positions to, to even kind of, you know, find appropriate candidates for, because it's in that trade space, but not necessarily requiring a ticket or some level of advanced education. So just looking for a good person, um, uh, but then also someone who's willing to kind of do the work. Uh, and so that's, that's proven to be a bit of a challenging uh, seek where, uh, there's that gap between someone who's at that level where they're at the management uh, capabilities, but not necessarily looking to do all the hard work. They've they've kind of done that through their career or finding someone who uh, is able to demonstrate at an early stage that they've got that aptitude and that they're motivated and that they would be someone who would want to take those reins on at some point. Interesting. People who like to blow things yeah. up. There's an opportunity there. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pleased, just personally pleased, because you and I have been talking for months now. I'm pleased to hear that uh, activity level levels have increased uh, over the last few months and in a very steady way. And that leads us to uh, A, a break, and B, a conversation about upskilling, because this is if uh, more and more people are coming back to the workforce, many changing careers because the old job is likely gone. And if, if it's going to come back, it's a year or two away. So upskilling is the key to career advancement. Joined by Brent Pollington, who is the owner of the Vancouver office of Express Employment Professionals. And they have a new poll out from the Harris Poll people that they commissioned. And it's talking about upskilling. And the nuts and bolts of it all, Brent, are that upskilling is key to career advancement. This is the headline. Employees must refresh hard skills to stay competitive. So flesh this out for us. Give us some numbers here, Brent, please. Uh, yeah, well, I um, I think the first thing I wanted to share is that there was a, a statement that my father made back to me that I found was really impactful that tied into this years ago before I even got into my career. He was a manager with an insurance company, and he would do performance reviews, and he would struggle with an employee who'd been in the same role for 15 or 20 years who figured that they were always entitled to performance increases and he would have some employees that had one year of experience, 15 years in a row. Right. Yep. And that's the way he kind of wrapped it to me was that, you know, this person feels that because they've been there, they've been in the role, but they've never taken on additional responsibility. And sure enough, they may understand the systems of the business better, or they may understand different processes and, and be able to navigate through the system. Uh, but could someone who's been there for a year, two years or three years do the same thing? as this person who's been there for 20. And eventually that person puts themselves in a really challenging position where if they have been getting a pretty sizable uh, increase year after year, that uh, they may put themselves in a position where their cost to the company is higher than the return that they're able to deliver. And it may be more beneficial for the company if the person starts to become um, 
demotivated in their role because they haven't progressed and they've been doing the same thing for an extended period that, you know, the company may look to, to move that person out, pay the severance that's, that's, you know, doing applicable and bring someone in who's far less expensive, coach and train them uh, and get the same. So uh, that kind of leads into this whole upskilling thing, which is where, you know, it, it's vital for a business to be incentivizing their employees uh, to upskill and to continue to, to identify areas where they can provide more value to the business. But it can't be an uphill push for the business owner or for the business. And it needs to be something that, if anything, the employee is more engaged in where they're saying, hey, uh, I want to be educated. I want to grow. I see a great opportunity with this company. What should I do? How can we both get there together? Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, uh, there are some occupations, Brent, that require uh, on an annual or even more frequent basis some degree of upskilling. You must attend an upgrade course relevant to your occupation once a year. Uh, You need to take a a skills development course once every 18 months in order to stay employed with this company. Uh, There are some organizations that do have that, but they are the minority, aren't they? Yeah, and there's also the associations as well uh, as the CPA to, to stay in good standing with them. Or if you're an engineer with the uh, you know Professional Engineers Association, and there's many like that, you need to continuously uh, invest and show them that you're investing in that personal development. And there's many more like it, uh, which is great. But, uh, you know, a lot of those kind of, of courses are... are maybe just mandatory to stay aware of what's happening in the industry sure. and not necessarily things that are going to be impactful for the company. What about companies picking up the tab for these upskilling adventures that their employees undertake on an annual basis? I gather that they're not as enthusiastic about paying for them as they are about appreciating their employees taking these programs. Yeah, and I would I would argue the opposite. I mean, I know if an employee from my company came to me and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm you know I'm really interested in taking the next step, and I see that you know sales is a part of my job, and I want to become an expert at it. You know what programs are available? I would take just as much ownership of exploring that process with them as I would hope they would, and I'd be happy to you know to foot the bill for it if it means that they're seeking training and development that is specific to their position within my company and that sure. would also create advancement opportunities for them. I think it's more where, you know, if you want to take general courses or you're an employee somewhere and you're going towards, you know, uh, a designation or something that's not necessarily in line with what this company offers, like there are certain uh, accounting positions or, or to even get your CPA designation, you need to, to have in the field experience, you need to upskill. Uh, and, and some employers understand that you're not going to be with them long term and they, they're happy to have you come in uh, and be just a kind of a transitional employee. Uh, but, but that's different for other companies where, uh, you know, again, if you haven't necessarily been open and honest with what your goals are and if they don't align with that company, then yeah, there's no reason a company would want to invest in that if they know that they're not going to get the return on it. So there you are sitting across the interview desk from the HR person going after job X and the interviewer says to you, so, you know, um, uh, people who do this work for our company uh, quite frequently, you know, take it upon themselves to uh, enhance their, their knowledge, to advance themselves in this particular career area. Are you that kind of person? Now, obviously, you're going to say, well, of course I am because you want the job. But how important is, is, that, is, is that answer to in the interview process? 
Yeah, and and I think a, a, it, that's a fantastic question because it opens up the door to what people may not understand as a behavioral-based interview question. And the answer to the question doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, obviously it does, but the answer is less important than what it is that you're showing the employer you are doing to self-invest in yourself. Now, I asked, uh, actually, when this came out, I asked a couple of my employees, you know, do you invest in, in kind of personal development? And if so, what do you do? Uh-huh. And I was surprised to hear that a number of them were listening to different podcasts and they were following different uh, people on YouTube and, and, and had a couple of uh, different sites that they were linked to that, that shared information in the recruitment space. And I don't think that there's necessarily a perfect answer to that question, but if you're able to show to somebody in that position that, you know, that you are invested in educating yourself uh, regardless of what it is, that uh, it may align with what they're looking for, it may not. And I think that's also a really important piece is that uh, there has to be a great fit for you and for the employer. And it's interesting. No, there's no, sorry, you're also citing non-typical sources. You know, you're not necessarily taking night school at BCIT. Maybe you're taking a self-directed course on YouTube or listening to a series of podcasts from a, a professional organization or something like that. They don't necessarily have to be traditional upskilling routes to take and do they? When I, whenever I uh, coach an employer that's looking to hire somebody or I look for an internal hire in my company, there's four kind of key areas. There's a fifth gray one, but product knowledge, uh, skills, motivation, and aptitude. And then the last kind of gray one is systems, if you have an understanding of the systems in the business. But if you don't necessarily have the product knowledge that a company is looking for and you don't have uh, the skills uh, then aptitude and motivation are the biggest things that you can bring to the table. If you can demonstrate to them that you've got the ability to learn uh, and that you're motivated, uh, that can be the least expensive hire that a company can make. If you're trying to hire, if a company tries to hire someone who's highly, highly uh, skilled and has a vast amount of product knowledge, that person's going to be very expensive. Again, an accountant leaving one accounting firm to another or a lawyer, whatever, uh, or even in trades. But again, the aptitude and the motivation piece are ones that uh, you anybody can have. And, and those are easy things to convey to a business owner or to a manager that's hiring of what have you done on your own accord? Why are you motivated? Why does this job align yeah. with you and your kind of personal objectives? Brent, what's the website, please? You've given us just a fabulous uh, description of how to sit down and conduct a reasonably intelligent interview and gain success. What's the website where people can go and learn more and connect with you if they want? Express Employment Professionals, and we're the Vancouver Downtown BC office, and I'd be happy to chat with anybody uh, about uh, interviewing or how to better interview, and and, and if if there's any way our office can be a resource to... uh, to people, whether they're seeking employees or job seekers, I implore them to reach out. Even if there's nothing with us, we'd be happy to help in any way that we can. Well, you're a fabulous resource for this program, Mr. Paulington. We appreciate your joining us once again, and we will talk before Christmas. Thanks, Brent. Take care. Thanks so much. Express Employment Professionals. Check it out. There's Brent Paulington. This has been a very challenging and different year for all of us, but especially for our seniors. We know the effects of isolation and loneliness have been significant during the pandemic, and we want our seniors to know we care, and we're thinking of them. So for the fourth year in a row, Stocking Stuffers for Seniors partners with local care homes and charities with a mission to bring more holiday cheer to seniors in all the communities we serve. That's directly from the London Drugs website, where, of course, Stocking 
Stuffers for Seniors 2020 is well and truly underway. A couple of guests joining us to talk about that. Clint Malman is the president and CEO of London Drugs. Good morning, Clint. Welcome back. Good to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, Sterling. And Susanna Phillip is with us from Mount St. Joseph's Hospital. Susanna, good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning as well. It's lovely to have you with us. Is it Providence Healthcare that's uh, running Mount St. Joseph and the seniors' uh, facilities within? Yes, it is. So, Clint, let's talk about the Seniors Stocking Stuffers campaign. It's it's uh, in its fifth year. Tell us uh, how it began and why it's so important this year. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, a real source of pride for the company. It actually started about 10 years ago okay. uh, at the same time in a couple of our stores. Uh, one of them was to uh, in the Kelowna area, and the other was up in Edmonton, totally uh, separate, working with their local care homes. And over that time, those informal relationships evolved to what we have today. And so now you have the entire London Drugs chain participating with seniors, community residences all across the system. Yeah, that's that's right. And and last year we had over 20,000 seniors, our customers, and staff supported uh, that many throughout Western Canada. And it continues to build. In fact, the last few years... Um, one of our challenges has been is uh, finding care homes that's become so popular that wanted to participate uh, because customers were, were lining up. It's not uncommon that we get uh, customers starting to phone us as early as August asking what home we're doing, have we got the tree up yet. And, of course, this year, more than any, uh, the isolation that our seniors are facing is significant, and we are working with these different care homes in a in more individual and customized way to ensure the safety of our seniors. Of course, with COVID precautions well and firmly in place, Clint, I'm wondering, though, based on the response you've had in previous years, how uh, almost overwhelming, I'm hoping overwhelming becomes an adjective to describe the participation level this year, because we certainly, all of us, have become aware of the plight of seniors during this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, Stats Canada suggests that 1.4 million, and it's probably higher than that, uh, are in Canada are at risk of isolation. And isolation and loneliness amongst our seniors is has always been at an epidemic level in Canada. But I think we can all imagine how much more difficult it is this year, given the health precautions, of course, we're all undertaking to support them. Yeah. And I think that this is going to be the year more than ever. And, and it's not just about gifts. I, we see a lot of customers so far this year doing that extra step to let the seniors know they're cared for, adding cards, writing them letters, involving them in their families, getting a printed mug of their family so they know that they there's real people out there thinking of them. And I think that's one of the subtle differences we're already seeing this year. Susanna, you've been on the receiving end of the Seniors Stocking Suffers campaign for a few years now at Mount St. Joe's. Uh, how How much more important do you think it is this year? I think every year it has been important and this year especially um, like you all are aware that families do not come in person to the care home yeah. but still uh, you know we try our level best to keep them connected with their families through virtual visits and in-person visits as well 
Uh, but this year, getting, you know, the gifts would be, I think it will give them immense joy because this is always an event they've always looked forward to. And London Drugs and their customers have been so generous over the last four years that this year is also going to make it very special for them. Have you noticed that over the years that you've been involved in observing this process become more popular, Susanna? Have you noticed the volume of gifts and participation increasing year after year? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, London Drugs and their customers have been so generous that every time the residents receive the gifts from our Santa Claus uh, at the care home, their faces that you could see that it just brightens up and there's so much of joy. Um, it, it is really a moment that they treasure and we all treasure as well, just watching them being so happy. Well, I can well imagine. Now, Clint, over the years, you've made this a very, very easy process, but for the benefit of someone who's just joining us and maybe unaware of what the London Drugs Stocking Stuffers for Seniors campaign is all about, how does it work? How do you, the individual citizen, get involved with contributing to the happiness of a senior at Christmas time? Okay, let me walk you through. At all of our London Drugs locations, uh, there is a Christmas tree set up with a tag uh, with individual seniors' requests. And based on the the work that that uh, store is working with their local homes, um, sometimes there's privacy issues. Sometimes the level of care being provided at those homes for those seniors uh, makes it for more of a generic gift, but each store is working with their local partner organization's needs. So you simply look at the back of the tag, take that tag, um, you can purchase the items on there. They have to be new and they're returned unwrapped. They don't have to be purchased for London Drugs. Okay. Um, but, and so it's, we're, our goal is to support seniors. It's, it's, that's what we want. And so you just return those items uh, in unwrapped into the store. Um, every home has a slightly different requirement on the date, but uh, generically speaking, December 16th is the final date to get your gifts back. Some stores have a couple uh, early dates. Mm-hmm. And then um, what's different this year, of course, is that the London Drug staff who assemble these gifts and would normally wrap them, uh, they have to, of course, respect the protocols that the individual homes are. That's everyone's first priority this year is safety. And then we uh, turn it over to the home. Traditionally, the London Drug staff, it's their highlight of their entire year, would visit the home uh, with and, and, and help distribute the gifts. Right. And, of course, that is just such a heartwarming and, and emotional time for the staff because they certainly realize the impact they're having. That will not happen this year uh, yeah, right. for obvious reasons, and that will be uh, working with their local home, um, and they will distribute the gifts after that. So that's the process. Um, occasionally we have a customer that per- gets a tag and, and, and forgets or, uh, for whatever reason, chooses not to continue. No problem. We don't want any tags unfilled, so they just return it simply to the customer service desk at any Lennon Drug store, and, 
as I said earlier, there's typically a lineup of people wanting to fulfill a gift. And the only thing that I'm, I'm noticing just in terms of the rules that apply specifically to the pandemic, uh, the other thing that you, you are discouraging this year is handmade or homemade presents. They need to be new, uh, wrapped, uh, unwrapped presents delivered to the, to the staff, and they'll pick up the ball and run with it from there, right? Yeah, that's a great reminder. I mean, it's obviously, again, a safety first for thinking of our seniors' health. And so while we've had some tremendous, uh, tremendously cute um, handmade gifts this year, uh, for obvious reasons, we, we need to stick with new and unwrapped and items that are, are clean. Susanna, how important is this day at your care home? I think it's very important. Every year it has been very important because we do realize that um, our residents look forward to this day. And especially this year, we have to kind of make sure that it is like how, um, you know, uh, the London Dog CEO mentioned, that it is uh, being sanitized ahead of time sure, right. and wrapped. And uh, we give it out in such a way that uh, it gives, you know, our residents joy at the same time we maintain social distance in our care home as well. Interesting stuff. Susanna, we wish you a, a joyous Christmas and the uh, fun of distributing these pre- presents one more time. Clint Malman, hats off to you, sir, and your entire team at London Drugs for uh, uh, this enterprise which you've taken on. Uh, we wish you continued considerable success, and thanks for this this morning. Thanks for getting the word out, Sterling. Our pleasure entirely. Susanna Phillip from Mount St. Joseph in Vancouver. Clint Malman, President and CEO of London Drugs. We're joined on the line by Sarah Hamid Balma, who is the Director of Mental Health Promotion with the Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division. And Sarah is joining us this morning to talk about, among other things, seasonal affective disorder. Sarah, good morning and thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. And, you know, and, and as I, I said, almost flippantly, and I didn't mean to sound as flippantly as perhaps I did, but, you know, we were going to t- promoting this uh, conversation and we were going into the news break, Sarah. I said, you know, we're going to talk to a, a, a representative from the Mental Health Association about seasonal affective disorder as if a pandemic wasn't enough. And and it's just sort of you know, in football, there's a penalty called piling on, which is just too much stuff going on top of one or another. So I I would imagine, Sarah, this year for a person who is seasonally affected, as in every year by SAD, uh, this has got to be a really tough year. Oh, for sure. Um, I think a lot of people coming out of the summer and with second wave and, you know, with with work stress, with, um, you know, with exams and with the shortening of days and now the prospect of, uh, you know, a totally reconfigured holiday season. Mm -hmm. um, It's a lot of it's a lot of change. Um, Many people who have seasonal affective disorder already know that, you know, October, November is going to come around and it's going to add some new challenges. Um, It's probably more challenging for someone who doesn't know that's what's going on. And, uh, and it's feeling it's feeling poorly, and they don't have any strategies to feel better. Sarah, they say, according to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, can include symptoms of hope, hopelessness, lethargy, and oversleeping. And the site also adds, SAD affects more women than men, to the tune of about 80% more women than men. What's the story there? 
Well, SAD is, is really, it's a kind of depression, um, just like postpartum depression. Um, it's, it's a kind of depression that just has a certain different pattern. And we don't fully understand why more, uh, my, why more women than men um, might, uh, you know, succumb to it. Yeah. Um, we also know that depression in general, um, more women will seek help for it as well. So there's a few complicated things going on in terms of, um, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, help seeking and and the kinds of symptoms that um, our our society actually, you know, is uh, is a little bit more forgiving uh, in terms of norms around depression for women. Mm. And they talk about it, of course, being connected to the lack of sunlight and cold weather and long Canadian winters and all of that sort of thing. So, as I recall, based on stories that we've done on this uh, this problem in the past, Sarah, one of the therapies to counteract it is light therapy, and it begins with maximizing exposure to natural light before you even bring on the artificial stuff. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and a lot of people actually, you know, overestimate how many people might have have, have this. But, uh, you know, about 15% of people will feel, you know, a bit of a winter blah. Mm-hmm, sure. uh, but only about 2% of people might, you know, reach, you know, a, get a diagnosis of seasonal affective disorder. But all of us could probably benefit from, from maximizing um, our exposure to, uh, to, to daylight. Um, not always sunlight, but just daylight yep. uh, during the shortening months um, and getting outside more. Uh, if we can, um, and uh, and we know that that's also good in the, uh, it's good for our mental health in general. It's good uh, during the pandemic because we're going to, um, you know, we have more risk than indoors. So, so getting outside is, is a good thing. Yeah, there are not many people north of the 49th parallel who aren't familiar with the winter blahs. Now, are there, Sarah? So let's talk about serotonin as a, a therapy for dealing with seasonal affective disorder. Well, serotonin is is a chemical and neurotransmitter in our in our brains that you know gets um, uh, affected uh, during all kinds of depression, um, not just seasonal affective disorder. So, it's important before we kind of go and try to treat ourselves. And obviously, antidepressants are are a main way that we uh, can can change the the levels of serotonin um, that are in our in our in our in our blood and brains uh-huh. um, to to actually go and get it checked out and make sure that that's what's going on. There's a number of things, thyroid problems and a whole range of things that can look like depression. So it's usually good to just to check it out before we go purchase a lamp or or start to uh, pick up natural remedies um, because there there can be some side effects and, and some other unintended consequences. So it's good to check it out. Sure. Sarah, and, and this may sound a little silly, but is this is this a condition that can be detected, for example, through a blood test or something like that? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm not. I'm not a physician, and maybe there are some experimental trials. But uh, but no, generally, you know, all kinds of depression. It, it, unfortunately, it's not. It's not really a blood test that can uh, that can detect it. But you know, a very structured interview um, with with someone who's qualified and um, can can really help you to figure out if this is a depression and not another. Um, a physical condition or something else that's going on or anxiety disorder or any number of other things um, or uh, or whether it's seasonal affective disorder or you're having a depression in the winter that's un- uh, that's not really related to the lack of sunlight. You know, there's, there's a kind of a stigma that happens in society when people ha- 
have depression issues, and it's it, it, it crosses the gender lines. I think probably equally, but there there's this sort of there's there's this sort of reluctance to come forward and say, "Boy, I'm I just I'm I'm not myself. Uh, there's something wrong here. There's I'm off my game, and I can't put my finger on it." Uh, and, and where do you go, Sarah? If you're listening to you and me right now, and you're sort of feeling kind of on the edge of something, you don't know uh, what it might be, but you're just not yourself. Who do you turn to? Do you go to your family doctor? Do you go online? Where do you go? There's a range of places people can go for help, but it's so important that if you're not feeling like yourself and it's been, you know, it's been, it's been a few weeks at least, so it's not just a bad day, um, that you go to someone that you trust. If you have a, you know, a decent relationship with your family doctor, that's a great place to start to at least rule out other reasons for why you might be feeling poorly. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it could be your, could be your wife, it could be your daughter, it could be, um, your pastor, it could be uh, a best friend, uh, talking to someone else to, to realize that like something you just get to, to get another perspective and to, and to, um, to get that encouragement to go and, and talk to someone. Um, but, but yeah, we also run a program at the Canadian mental health association that's free, that is really effective for all kinds of depression um, and that you can refer yourself to and, and it can be done safely during a pandemic. And so we would also encourage you to go to uh, bouncebackbc.ca and, um, and investigate some of the tools we have to, uh, to fight depression. Well, let's talk about that. If we can just broaden the conversation for a couple of minutes, Sarah, because I'm sure during this pandemic and the subsequent isolation and the loss of work and uh, uh, losing one's place can be the uh, uh, quite a, uh, an accelerant for depression. So I'm, I'm assuming this number or this uh, web address, bouncebackbc.ca, has been pretty darn busy over the past few months. Oh, absolutely, and we actually got some extra funding through some of the, the some of the surge dollars in April um, to to anticipate the increase in numbers. And absolutely, we've been um, uh, we've been deluged with uh, with referrals, and it's um, it's been heartening on the one hand to see that people are actually seeking help, and of course, disheartening on the other hand to see so many people um, who are suffering and um, and you know range of things from employment and housing and um, grief, um, isolation. Uh, there's so many risk factors right now for um, poor mental health and uh, and and depression and anxiety and and we're, we're just happy to be here to help but uh, but for sure we've been seeing rising numbers yeah it says delivered online I'm, I'm on the website delivered online or over the phone with a coach you'll get access to tools that will support you on your path to mental wellness so there is a there is a declaration of who you are and what's going on and you have a conversation with someone and together you sort of map out a return to normal strategy or root? Right. So one of the most effective treatments for any kind of depression is a, it's a a kind of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy that helps you work through skills um, to look at thinking, to look at behaviors, and to look at things that really impact your mood very, very directly. And so these skills you don't have to go see um, for most kinds of mild to moderate depression, don't need to, you know, wait in line and, and spend a lot of insurance dollars to go and see a registered psychologist. Right. Um, and so we have designed this program with the Ministry of Health to, um, to support people um, in that mild to moderate range. And so you'll work with a coach um, over, you know, six to eight weeks and we're 
work through different um, modules and different skills and practice and, and get that encouragement and support um, to work through some, uh, some booklets and videos um, to, to start practicing some things that will help you feel better. So it's, it's more than even one conversation. Indeed it is, and it's wonderful stuff, and we're grateful for you uh, to uh, join us this morning to remind us that it's even there, Sarah, because uh, I think a lot more people are going to be calling that number uh, or visiting your website in the days ahead. Friends, it's Bounce Back BC, all one word, bouncebackbc.ca. It's the BC chapter of the Canadian Mental Health Association website, and it's a great resource. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us this morning. This is important stuff. We appreciate your time. Thanks for prioritizing mental health. Have a great weekend. You too. Sarah Hamid Balma with the Canadian Mental Health Association, BC Division. And there's a new study out of the University of Victoria that finds a link between starting medical cannabis and stopping drinking. Philippe Lucas is a University of Victoria researcher who led the study and is also Tilray's Vice President of Global Patient Research and Access and is here to tell us more about his findings. Mr. Lucas, Philippe, good morning and welcome. Good morning, uh, Sterling. Great to be here. Thanks for the interest in this work and research. Well, it's very interesting work and research. Uh, basically, you're fine. Well, give us some numbers here, because frankly, that's what uh, drew us, Andrew and me, to this story. The fact that there's not just a link, it's a significant link. Flesh it out for us, Philippe, please. Yeah, sure. Well, we did a, a broad survey of Canadian patients in 2019. In fact, it was the largest survey of Canadian medical cannabis patients at the time. And we gathered uh, feedback from 2,102 uh, patients across Canada. And when we asked them about their use of, of uh, alcohol before and after initiating medical cannabis, we found 973 of those participants had used alcohol at some point in their lifetime on a regular basis. Of those, 44% reported decreasing alcohol use frequency um, over 30 days uh, prior to the survey compared to their use prior to uh, using medical cannabis. And in fact, 8% of this uh, population had actually stopped using alcohol altogether after uh, using uh, medical cannabis or introducing that in their course of care. So really significant decrease in alcohol use following medical cannabis initiation. Interesting stuff. So, Philippe, give me the premise for being one of those 2,100 volunteers. Did you have to be an individual, for example, uh, with uh, some kind of alcohol issues, uh, some kind of addiction issues, or just a, a moderate to heavy daily consumer? What were the criteria that you used? For us, it was just authorized medical cannabis patients. So all these patients were registered with Tilray, which is a federally authorized medical cannabis production and research company sure. based out of British Columbia. And so they were all authorized users. So it's not just folks who say they're using cannabis for medical purposes. In this case, they would have had a doctor's script or doctor's support for their use of medical cannabis. And within that, we asked a series of questions, you know, demographic data, capture their age, their patterns of medical cannabis use. But we also asked about their use of alcohol, tobacco, prescription drugs, and illicit substances as well. Okay. And this paper is based on the alcohol findings. We have a follow-up paper that showed a significant reduction in the use of tobacco as well in the same patient population following medical cannabis introduction. So this would, the point of the, 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 the study, as I'm taking it from a Tilray perspective, and you do represent that to a certain degree in this conversation mm -hmm. as well, was to determine the efficacy of medicinal cannabis 
as a what? As a substitute or as a, uh, a, a replacement in some ways for alcohol or opioids or any other harmful substances that we typically consume? That's right. I've been a cannabis researcher for about uh, 15 years now, and the focus of my research is patient patterns of use and the way that use can displace the use of prescription drugs like opioids, but also alcohol, tobacco, and, uh, and illicit substances. And so we have questions built into our surveys that gather some of the data on that. Uh, but this is one of the first major publications to, to look uh, specifically at, at the changes in alcohol use following medical cannabis initiation. And certainly this data is compelling, but builds on other data out of U.S. states and out of other jurisdictions that shows that cannabis for a lot of uh, uh, patients and even recreational users is no longer, you know, can no longer be considered a gateway drug to addiction. It seems to be, in a lot of cases, an exit drug to folks who have problematic patterns of uh, drug use, whether it be alcohol or other drugs. Isn't that isn't that an interesting twist of fate, Philip? Because there were, not too long ago, maybe a decade or a little longer, there were still a strong presence in the population of people who viewed cannabis as a gateway drug. You, you start smoking doobies, and the next thing you're out, you're shooting heroin in some back alley. It's just a matter of time. Well, here we are, many, many years later, changing the language for from gateway drug to exit drug. Now, with that in mind, and I think you and I have talked about this on the radio before, <laughs> there, there were suggestions, Philip, about using medicinal cannabis as uh, in the downtown east side, for example, as one of any number of possible measures to offset this horrible opioid crisis we continue to have in our midst. That's exactly right. There are a number of services that I'm aware of, um, some that are regulated and some operating outside of the regulated space that are um, now distributing medical cannabis uh, to those with opioid dependence issues. And uh, the research that's been done on some of these initiatives shows that those who are deliberately using cannabis in order to reduce the use of stimulants as well as opioids can find uh, fewer harms associated with those opioids. So reductions, for example, in shifting from uh, uh, orally taken opioids to injecting opioids. You see that cannabis plays uh, uh, kind of interrupts the cycle uh, of people using opioids and moving on to more problematic use of those opioids. And in U.S. states, we actually see when we go look back at the alcohol data, that in those states that have legalized the use of alcohol uh, or the, that have legalized the use of medical, medical or cannabis, cannabis yeah. yeah, you see reductions in alcohol-related harms, such as uh, autom- fatal automobile accidents, mm-hmm. uh, domestic violence and violent crimes, and even suicides, because all of those are tied to alcohol use. Uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, Philip, uh, the final question to you, it's so good to have you back with us again. We must do this again a little more frequently. <laughs> but when, when you take someone and you, you replace alcohol with medical cannabis, the argument that some are going to give you is, well, there's still a dependency issue. You've taken a, a person from being dependent on alcohol to being dependent or reliant on medical cannabis. Uh, truly, I think it's pretty uh, pharmaceutically identifiable that alcohol is considerably more harmful and damaging than medical cannabis, but nonetheless, you're going from one to another. You're not really, you're just replacing dependencies. What's, what's the answer to that? 
Well, you know, we re- try and reduce the harms of all kinds of behaviors. So we wear seatbelts when we drive. We wear helmets when we bike in order to reduce the potential harms associated with those behaviors. And when you look at a shifting people away from alcohol use, which is demonstrably, by any measure, more harmful uh, potentially than cannabis yep. use, and I'd say more harmful in terms of the risk of dependence, of disease, um, morbidity and mortality, um, as well as uh, from a point of view of public safety, both impacts on driving as well as domestic violence and violent crime, cannabis by any measure is far less harmful than alcohol. So right. even if we shift a small percentage of the Canadian population away from using alcohol and towards using cannabis, I'd be the last person to say that cannabis is entirely safe for all patients or all individuals under all circumstances. Right. I want to be clear, that's not what we're saying. But if you shift a small percentage of the population away from alcohol to, to cannabis, you get an unquestionable uh, public health benefit from that. And I think that's what we're seeing in the research that we publish, but also in studies going on around the world on this issue as well. Interesting stuff. Great stuff, too, Philip. Appreciate the homework enormously. Where can people listening to this right now go online to dig deeper into what we've been just talking about? Well, certainly we've got some of the publications that we've done at Tilray at, uh, at the Tilray website at tilray.ca. But also uh, check out um, organizations like the BC Center for Substance Use that's been doing really cutting-edge research in this area as well. And um, as I mentioned, there are a number of harm reduction surfaces uh, focused on uh, cannabis as a substitute for more harmful substances. Uh, that are taking place right now in Vancouver. So certainly you can uh, search them out as well. Some of those services are available right now to those with opioid dependence issues and other issues as well. It's important information to gather. Uh, Philip, thanks very much for taking a few moments out of your Sunday to to, uh, join us. We'll talk more uh, down the road. Appreciate it very much. It's great to talk to you, Sterling. Have a good day. You too. Philip Lucas from Tilray, who is also a graduate researcher with the Center for Addiction Research at the University of Victoria. Now we're going to talk to the author of a piece in the TIE that Andrew and I noticed a couple of days ago. The headline was, How Better Toxic Drug Alerts Could Save Lives. BC's patchwork system alerting people to poison drugs works well in some regions but others fall short. The story was written by Prishti Basu, who is a Victoria-based journalist who writes for National Geographic, Vice, and other publications, including the TAI. Prishti Basu is on the line to talk more about her story. Good morning, and thanks for joining us, Prishti. Hi, it's Sterling. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's good of you to join us. Talk about the patchwork nature of, of the system. Well, first of all, what sort of a province-wide drug alert system do we have in place right now in BC? Bristy, let's start with what we have. So we don't actually have a province-wide alert system. It's patchwork because it's each health authority taking information from uh, various other authorities like uh, first responders, like drug checking services in their own region, and then creating alerts that they, that each health authority then sends out. Um, and there's a lot of variance in the amount of information that each of these alerts has, depending on where you are. I suppose the kind that, that, that I, and I appreciate that that's probably the case, Bristy, but 
in these months that have gone down since March in British Columbia, when we have seen our provincial health system come together out of necessity, mind you, but come together and unite in a provincial effort to combat COVID-19, we automatically, many of us assume, wow, the health system's really got tightened up. They're really, really coming together here. So it's a bit of an eye-opener this morning to hear that maybe they're doing okay or better on the COVID-19 front, but as far as toxic drugs, it's still a kind of a, a, a bit of a dog's breakfast. Absolutely. Well, when it comes to, especially when it comes to sending out alerts, there seems to be a lot of frustration on the front lines with overdose prevention unit workers not having all the information that they necessarily want to be able to give their clients. Um, So they're saying things like, well, we want to know uh, exactly how many people have overdosed in a specific region, what kind of drug is causing that harm, and maybe what it looks like, and that information is not always provided. Ah, I see. And who would be responsible for making that information available to first responders, Brishti? So that would come from uh, drug checking services um, in, in each health authority. Okay. And uh, which, uh, I'm assuming, Metro Vancouver, which and we're talking toxic drugs, so we're talking mostly about the opioid crisis, and most of that, certainly not all of it, but most of it has occurred within the, the geographical confines of Metro Vancouver. What's the story here? Who does the reporting in, in this area? So the Metro Vancouver area actually has its own uh, very highly praised system of alerts. So they have their radar drug checking alert, sorry, the radar drug alert system um, in which substance users can actually sign up to receive text alerts. Um, So when a toxic drug is circulating, they're told uh, what that drug looks like in the exact specific region within the lower mainland it's circulating in. Um, And uh, yeah, so that particular system has actually been praised by Vancouver area network of drug users. Um, And is there one, as you've, you've taken a step back and you've looked at the big picture of all of British Columbia and you see that Metro Vancouver has uh, an exceptional program that it really, uh, that uh, people not only from Canada, but from, from around the world are taking a look at and going, well, that's an interesting model. Maybe we could borrow a little bit from what they're doing up there in Vancouver, Canada. So if they've got it kind of right in Vancouver, where do they really don't have much going on at all? I would say Island Health is a, a health authority where there's not much uh, information provided in, in the alerts. You know, uh, even, Fra- even Fraser Health Authority has an email alert system. But in Island Health, you really only get a generic message with your overdose alerts. Uh, it just says there's a toxic drug circulating in, say, Greater Victoria, and here's how to use safely. Um, it, there are no alerts in the Island Health region, at least in the past eight months, that say what kind of drug is circulating um, and any more information really in those alerts. And I would imagine a lot of people in the public health system right now would would uh, probably brush aside criticism uh, like that going, look, don't you understand there's a pandemic underway? I mean, just give us, let us establish our priorities here. But you know, if you're in the public health business, Brishti, you ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, don't you think? Definitely. And I mean, it, it stands because over over 1,200 people at least have died this year to, due to the overdose crisis. This is not a crisis that needs, that can be taken lightly. Yeah. 
So what then, if uh, if the island, if there's that massive a gap in difference in in reporting between the island and here in in the lower mainland, how do you bridge that gap? Is is it the job of the provincial government? Is it the job of Dr. Bonnie Henry and the public health officials? Who who's going to have to pick up the ball and and make this work? Well, it sounds like expanding the drug checking program on Vancouver Island that the one that is currently in existence uh, through, through the University of Victoria, expanding that system might actually give those researchers and those scientists a way to put forth that information to the Drug Overdose and Alert Partnership. And then that would cause uh, the health authority to maybe create better alerts. But uh, that's the kind of thing that kind of sounds like it's not really being prioritized at the moment. It's interesting because we just had a conversation with Philippe Lucas at the University of Victoria at the the Center for Substance Abuse. It's on the island for crying out loud. That's Again, it's a little baffling when you know that that kind of research facility and those kinds of incredibly capable people are sitting right there. I mean, yes, they're busy, uh, but you know, it, if, if they're as capable as we know them to be, this wouldn't be an onerous task to unload on them in terms of passing along information. It's it's not that hard, is it? Mm-hmm. Well, what one of the scientists at the Canadian Institute of Substance Use Research said is that they haven't actually figured out a way to convey information without uh, including stigmatizing language. The, the concern there really is that when these alerts get picked up in social on social media or by the general media, uh, they can use further stigmatizing language. Um, that can then lead to more of a crackdown by police instead of increasing access to safety supplies. So that's really the concern there. And then, of course, that leads us right to Kennedy Stewart and his uh, request for the federal government to decriminalize small uh, portions or quantities of uh, of narcotics, which uh, some of which can be toxic and kill people. So the the circle continues to go round and round, but at least now we understand what's in it and who some of the players are. Bristy, it's good work you've done in the TIE. I suspect you and I are going to talk more about this because this is far from resolved. And uh, we we thank you for for at least bringing more of it to our attention this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Bursti Basu, the uh, article in the TAI, How Better Toxic Drug Alerts Could Save Lives. It's a good read. I know it's not the happiest story in the world, but if the more you know about what's going on, the easier it is to understand and perhaps even contribute positively. Our arts, our community arts series continues, and it's not until I read their open letter to Minister of Health Adrian Dix that I discovered the Arts Club Theatre Company here in Vancouver is the third largest not-for-profit theatre company in Canada after the Shaw and Stratford festivals. The uh, executive director of the Arts Club Theatre Company is Peter Cathy White, and he's on the line right now. Peter, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Peter. Now, let's talk a little bit about this letter that uh, you and uh, your uh, uh, you and other members of the executive of the Arts Club uh, penned to Mr. Dix, uh, basically asking the question why the theater industry appears to have been singled out in the latest uh, round of restrictions announced just the other day. Yes, uh, and I would say we're not alone in terms of arts companies uh, questioning this and challenging this. I know that the Firehall Arts Centre also has a show on, as does Mitch and Murray Productions. Uh, we all had productions on uh, at, at when this announcement was made on sure, Thursday. Yep. We had Firehall on a couple of weeks ago, Peter, oh, so yeah, did, indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was going well, too, mm-hmm, and I yeah. would say, you know, in terms of 
the safe operations of live theatre. Of course, uh, we did have safe operations. We stayed with the mandated numbers. We never had more than 50 people. Uh, we have a 450-seat theatre, mm-hmm. a 250-seat theatre, so the space, physical spaces. Uh, you know, well past six feet where people are, and we've had mandatory mask wearing inside. And uh, in the order on Thursday, Dr. Bonnie Henry said, any business that has proven it can operate safely will stay open. And yet we weren't considered a business like that. We're lumped in with community gatherings and, you know, uh, online, silent, not online, but silent auctions. It's just, uh, it, we're, we're in a very strange classification that doesn't make any sense to us. Uh, we're not looking for other businesses to be shut down. If businesses can operate safely, we should be allowed to open. Right. I just don't understand why a cinema can be deemed to operate safely and a live theatre can't. And by the way, just, just on a semantical hair-splitting notion, do uh, performers in the Arts Club company receive compensation for their, uh, for their work in front of those live audiences? Yes, the Arts Club Theatre Company is a professional theatre company. Well, there you go. That that sounds an awful lot like a business to me, then, Peter. People are making a living at it. Well, I mean, I I think if you you look at the challenges of any arts organisation at the moment, we're so reliant on patrons for revenue. Uh, The Arts Club, and this is not unique to the Arts Club, is only normally funded 7% of our revenue by the three levels of government. And 93% comes from patrons. Sure. It comes from ticket sales which is about 65%, 20% from donations and the rest from, you know, corporate sponsors, that sort of thing. So without, without patrons and without selling tickets, we don't have a business. And uh, so let's, and we're not being seen in that light. Exactly. So let's talk about what was underway until the order of a couple of days ago and what the plan is to res- when, when you're permitted to resume. Uh, well, we had, we've uh, been performing uh, one cast member plays, so we've been found single cast member plays for the safety of our actors and the safety of our technicians. We've uh, had quite an innovative model, actually, where we've had two casts and we've been doing 14 performances a week with alternating the two casts because uh, under the theatre agreement, when you're you know, a professional theatre company, actors can't do more than eight shows a week. Right, OK. Uh, so we had each actor doing seven. Uh, we've done 156 performances since September, all of them with no breaches of safety and all of them, uh, you know, done with the strictest of safety protocols. And we had a show on the Granville Island stage by Anosha Rani called Buffoon, which was in its last week. Uh, so we had to cancel six performances of that production. And we just started performances. We had two performances of the 12 Dates of Christmas, which we'd scheduled for a six and a half week run, about 96 performances or so. And we had to shut that down on uh, Thursday night uh, because of the new order. Right. So, Peter, uh, you have two stages. Uh, the Stanley. Yes, we have the, three. The, oh, okay. So there's the Stanley, yeah. the old Stanley Theatre up on, Gran, um, on yep, Granville the, Street around 12th. Yep. Uh, then there's the one on Granville Island. Where's the third one? Uh, we have the Newmont stage at the BMO Theatre Centre in the Olympic Village. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It's a space that we share with Bard on the Beach in terms of the rehearsal spaces and the office space, and the theatre there is an arts club theatre. And uh, so was the uh, was Buffoon playing at the Stanley or down on Granville Island? It was playing at the Granville Island stage, and the 12 Dates of Christmas was playing at the Newmont stage at the BMO Theatre Centre in the Olympic Village. Okay. So we weren't. We, none, none, neither of the productions was at our Stanley Industrial Arts stage that we had to shut down. 
uh, and that's simply that's because it's theater. it's an expensive facility to just turn the lights on in, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, I think, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, part of our struggle, well, no, I should say part of the Arts Club Theatre Company's strength has always been that we own or have long-term leases on our spaces. Yes. So we control them. Uh, but now, uh, with spaces not being able to be filled to capacity and we can't, do the sort of productions that we normally do, uh, the operating expenses of those spaces is a bit of a you know millstone around our neck. Indeed. So now you uh, mentioned that the lion's, right the lion's share of your revenue, Peter, comes from uh, tickets, but there is yeah. a small component of funding from various levels of government. Has at least that funding remained constant? Yes, it has. I would say that uh, for the arts, there has been a good response uh, from the federal government and just recently from the provincial government in terms of some additional arts funding to help uh, the not-for-profit arts companies you know, try and get through this difficult time because, I mean, it really has affected uh, uh, businesses that put, you know, people in seats the most, you know, which includes us, it includes airlines, it includes travel, anything where it's bubs and seats. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the arts. Live theatre is much like movies, selling tickets. Absolutely. Uh, so the difference for us is donations, because I would say also, it, besides the government stepping up, our patrons have also stepped up and donated the value of their tickets back to us, given us individual donations for us to be able to get through this time. So now, we're very appreciative of that. Uh, Peter, explain how that works, please, because this is this is a tactic that is being adopted now by a number of theatre companies and that we're starting to hear about. How does one go about doing that, donating back the tickets? Uh, it's actually really easy. All you have to do, uh, we've provided all our patients with a survey where they can give us the choice. Uh, we offer them a choice of donating their ticket back to us and you do get a tax a tax receipt, for sure, receipt yeah. Because we are a charity. Uh, or you could choose to put the money that you have paid for your tickets as a credit on file that you can use at any time in the future with the Arts Club. Uh, we ask, we are asking our patrons uh, not to ask for a refund, if at all possible. Sure. But of course we understand. I mean, we're in the same predicament and we know that the community is affected by this crisis as well. So uh, we will do that uh, if that is what the patron uh, desires. Peter, but obviously, we are hopeful that our patrons are, are conscious of our charitable status and uh, and are trying to help us too. Well, it's it's a t- it's a trying time to to have this conversation. It was not what we had in mind when we uh, when we were, were hoping to speak to someone from the arts club just to, in general about what's going on and all the rest of it. But that letter uh, proved to be uh, the the tipping point for Andrew and me. We're grateful that you've taken the time this morning to share uh, your letter to Mister Dix with us. We'll be looking forward to what he says by way of response. Yeah, and I and hope we, we uh, yeah. Sorry, I do hope we get something. I do want to get across that point that uh, I mean we. Obviously, you know, the safety of our patients, the safety of the community is very important. What we don't understand is why live theatre is the only new business in this latest order to be shut down when every other business who has been operating safely like we have is allowed to operate. That's fair ball, Peter. And uh, we'll have to uh, talk about what Mr. Dix and his uh, minions have to say by way of response. Thank you for this this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you. There is uh, Peter. Bye, Peter. Peter Cathy White, the executive director of the Arts Club Theatre Company.